The Dave Berta Podcast is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. Find out more about the network and other amazing Alberta-made podcasts at albertapodcastnetwork.com. I'm Dave Cornway. I'm Natalie Pond. And I'm David Kleimenhager. And you're listening to the Dave Berta Podcast. We're recording this episode on Sunday, February 10th, 2018, and we are joined by our producer, Adam Rosenhart. This episode, we're talking about the Friday Night Bombshell. Alberta Party leader Stephen Mandel and five Alberta Party candidates have been banned from running in the next election due to incomplete or late filed paperwork. Is this fair? What does this mean for the election, for the Alberta Party, and for the future of Stephen Mandel's leadership? An election call is coming. How likely do you think it is that Premier Notley will table a budget after the throne speech on March 18th? Is there actually going to be a throne speech on March 18th? Were last week's budget consultation town halls just a ruse? And how much of an impact will third-party groups like the Wilberforce Project have on the election? I'm going to ask our two guests what they des- what they believe are two issues that aren't getting the attention they deserve in Alberta politics ahead of the upcoming election and ask them why they think those issues are important. And we'll dig into the mailbag to answer the, qu- the answer the questions our listeners sent us over the past few weeks, and then we'll dig into some nomination news. But first, before we get started, I, I wanted to just give a little a little time to introduce our two special guests today, uh, Natalie Pond and David Kleimenhaga. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Dave. So, so our listeners might be wondering why why we have two special guests, and and what happened to that other co-host, Ryan Hastman? He's finally seen his end. He's 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 <laughs> he, he he's uh, he's taken refuge from the polar vortex and yeah. uh, has fled south uh, to some place a destination much warmer and and we wish him well. Uh, we're sorry he's not here this week, but we're happy to welcome uh, welcome our two guests onto the podcast. So before we get started and jump into uh, into our topics, I was hoping that uh, you guys might just take a little opportunity to introduce yourself, uh, tell us who you are, and and uh, and maybe a little bit about how you got involved in politics and why you're here. Sure, Dave. So my name is Natalie, and I got involved in conservative politics uh, shortly after I graduated university. I'd been a provincial PC member since I was a teenager, but didn't really get involved in partisan politics till I graduated university. And since then, I've just spent my time fundraising for candidates, working on campaigns, and and just being a conservative activist here in Edmonton. Uh, Most recently, I was on the United Conservative Party Interim Joint Board. Um, unfortunately, I did not win re-election at the UCP AGM last May, and since then, I've just been really picky about who I've decided to help out on nominations and and stuck to federal politics for the most part. Great, great. And we were on a panel last week. We did a civics panel at for the I think the North North Central Teachers Convention. We had a really great time. It was it was a lot of fun. Yes, democracy boot camp. I think we got some we got some really great questions there. Yeah, the teachers seemed really engaged, and and wanting to to know how to approach the next election and what they should expect going forward. Yeah, and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that in the, uh, during the podcast. Thanks, Natalie. Dave? David Kleimenhaga? Well, I'm Dave or David. You can call me either. How, how about I, I'm Dave and you're David, just so uh, people <laughs> that, don't get that, confused. That, making it confusing that confuse for us me. here. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm a, uh, uh, ju- I've been a journalist for many years. I was 30 years. I uh, worked for papers like the Globe and Mail and the uh, Calgary Herald for many years. And uh, I covered politics. I covered, I was had the City Hall beat uh, for the Calgary Herald, for example, for a couple of years. Uh, and I've always been intensely interested in politics. But my forays 
uh, into political life have not been particularly successful. I've run a couple of times for public office uh, and lost uh, frustratingly, frustratingly narrowly on both occasions. <laughs> but anyway, so I think the uh, on that topic, the people have spoken and I'm not electable, so I won't be going back to doing that. I wanted, for many of the years I was... Uh, a reporter, particularly here in Alberta, to cover provincial politics, and uh, for one reason or another didn't have the opportunity. And uh, so when I left the newspaper business after the Calgary Herald strike, I went to work for the trade union movement. I'd been the vice president of the Calgary Herald's union local. And uh, they succeeded in busting the union, so that was the end of my relationship with that employer. <laughs> and uh, and uh, was working for you know, for the trade union movement as I continue to do. I work for United Nurses of Alberta. But in the meantime, I began to write a blog about uh, Alberta politics in particular and Canadian politics in general. And uh, uh, it's turned out to be extremely well read, as is Dave Cornway's blog. And uh, uh, I, it's a great pleasure to do. It's just, uh, it's my hobby, not my profession, no matter what people think. I get no money from George Soros or, or, or Justin Trudeau, as people keep <laughs> accusing me of doing. Uh, but anyway, it's, uh, I have a great time doing it. And uh, I think that's probably why I'm here today. Well, that's awesome. That's great. Well, thank Yeah. Thanks for being here, both of you guys. And, and uh, I'm looking forward to the uh, Looking forward to the discussion. We'll jump into some nomination news. With an election call uh, six or seven weeks away, uh, all the all of Alberta's political parties are busy filling out their slates, nominating candidates to run in the next election. Uh, some parties are further ahead than others. Uh, uh, this past weekend, the United Conservative Party nominated candidates in two ridings. So they now have candidates nominated in 81 of 87 ridings. So six candidates left after this weekend's nomination. The two candidates who were nominated, one in Calgary North, which was a big nomination meeting. Uh, Mohammed Yassin was nominated in a, in a race with, I think there were five or six candidates. Uh, and that one was, I think, a little bit unexpected. Um, I know that there was a lot, of, a, lot of, um, a lot of focus and a lot of talk about Paul Frank running uh, running his, in his candidacy and getting a lot of support, a lot of support from some people who had supported Jason Kenney's campaign. So that, that from what I've talked about, talked to with uh, with conservatives in Calgary, that one was seen as a bit of a, of a, of a surprise. Um, and in Lethbridge East, I think this one is actually quite interesting. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Nathan Newdorf won the nomination. Now, he had initially, last year, entered the nomination race in Lethbridge East to run for the UCP, and then he dropped out to run in the neighboring riding in Livingstone McLeod, and then he lost the UCP nomination Livingstone McLeod, and then re-entered the race in Lethbridge East, and then has won the nomination in Lethbridge East. So I'm not sure what the what the the story was behind him jumping from one riding to another and then back, but uh, it seemed to have worked out for him. Uh, at least in terms of winning the nominations in the end. In some parties, that's frowned upon. Yes. And actively discouraged. <laughs> would you would you care to educate us on which part? Well, I don't think the NDP really approves of that, and I think there've been cases where people have chosen, uh, because of redistricting, to uh, uh, to run in one particular uh, riding and then uh, maybe regretted that decision. But the, it's the road the road is not open to them necessarily easily to run somewhere else. Is this have you seen this before? Is it is it it doesn't sound like it's terribly common. Well, I've seen candidates who've run in one riding and or who, who have run for a nomination in one riding and then lost and then run for a nomination in the other riding in another riding, but typically they don't win mm-hmm. the second time round. Typically it's seen as a little uh, bit of a desperate move and, and uh 
and uh, and they don't necessarily have the types of connections that they would need or, or the the ground support that they would need because they had previously focused on on running in uh, in in the other riding. How do you feel if you're a voter in the second riding? Right? What are we chopped liver? <laughs> yes. Or or do voters? Do you think voters even pay attention to nom- this well, this kind of nomination I think that stuff? They can be made to pay attention to things like that when the campaign begins, and often yeah. somebody will. Uh, if you say this is that's a very good point. I don't think people are paying attention except nerds like us early on, <laughs> this early on even. But when the campaign comes, those things can turn into bombs. Well, kudos to him to winning anyways in that, <laughs> that second attempt. I think that shows uh, an ability to, to sell some memberships and, and get out your vote. So, I mean, regardless of whether or not it's frowned upon or not in other parties, I think it's impressive nonetheless that he was able to sell enough memberships to win this time. There you go. Good <laughs> and, uh, and I mean, I, 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 Lethbridge is, is kind of identified for me as one of the, I think that's one of, can be one of the, one of the battleground areas of the province, both Lethbridge East and Lethbridge West, because uh, it does have, a, the, the city of, of Lethbridge does have a tradition that's less like the city of Calgary and more like the city of Edmonton in terms of, of having a progressive vote. And there are two NDP incumbents and, and then the UCP is really going to be focused on winning those seats. So there'll be a, a race in Lethbridge, uh, Lethbridge East. So this will definitely be, not be the last time uh, we talk about this, uh, this race going into the, uh, going into the election. Do you happen to know how many, um, how many candidates the NDP have nominated so far? The the NDP have nominated fifty seven candidates or <laughs> ridings in, or candidates in fifty seven ridings across the province. So thirty more to go. Thirty more to go, and I believe they have about twenty scheduled now. Uh, and then there's a handful of ridings like Drumheller and Cardston that they'll probably probably just drop candidates in because they don't stand a hope in heck of winning. winning. <laughs> that, that would suggest that they know the schedule. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, yes. <laughs> I, I, I think I think we're working on their timeline. So uh, so someone asked me the other day about uh, you know when do you think the when do you think the NDP are going to call the election? I said, well, when the NDP have a full slate of candidates, then we're probably going to be pretty close to uh, yeah. <laughs> to an election call. When when you're the party that, that gets to pull the pull the plug on on or pull the trigger on these kind of things. So, uh, two more, just a couple more nomination races I wanted to mention. So we went over the two UCP nomination races. Uh, we there has been, as I said, that the NDP have been nominating a, a bunch of candidates. Um, they, they started off a little late. So they're starting to catch up now. Uh, one interesting one, John Archer, former CBC reporter, former press gallery reporter, and turned uh, government, uh, uh, government of Alberta press secretary and, and spokesperson, has been nominated for the NDP in Edmonton Southwest, which I thought was quite interesting. Now, the Edmonton Southwest riding, uh, for those of you who, 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 know, who, who know, know about these ridings, right now Edmonton Southwest is represented by Thomas Dang, who's an NDP MLA, but they're, they're splitting the riding with the, the, the way the, the new boundaries are being drawn. And Thomas Dang is running in the eastern portion of his former Edmonton Southwest riding, which is now called Edmonton South. So uh, John Archer didn't defeat or didn't uh, isn't rep- kind of isn't uh, didn't challenge Thomas Dang for the nomination, but he's succeeding him in this in this the, uh, a different riding with the exact same name or part of the old riding with the exact same name and and those areas in Southwest Edmonton and South Edmonton for 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 people in the know uh, have had huge population growth in the past couple of years, massive amounts of new suburbs going in, lots of young families, lots of kids. Um, typically in in these these new neighborhoods that are going up, you have schools that open and are at like. 200% capacity as soon as the doors open because they're just that many kids. So that's kind of the one of the big demographics in the in these ridings. So that'll be quite interesting to uh, quite interesting to watch to see how that goes. Um, also nominated in uh, uh, the Cypress Medicine Hat 
riding, which I think is interesting. Not necessarily fertile NDP ground, <laughs> probably the opposite of fertile ground for the NDP. Uh, but uh, Peter Mueller, who is a co- political columnist with the Medicine Hat News uh, and a fierce uh, critic of current incumbent UCP MLA Drew Barnes. <laughs> and <laughs> if any, I, 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 I read the, the Medicine Hat News quite frequently uh, online on their website, and it's quite entertaining, the... Uh, the uh, the politics uh, in in that community with with Peter's columns and Drew Barnes supporters replying back to Peter Peter Mueller and Peter Mueller replying responding back to uh, to his critics through his column. It's quite uh, anyway. It's quite entertaining looking from uh, you know many 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 kilometers away. Um, so that will be an interesting race to watch uh, simply because I think it'll there there will, there, uh, there could definitely be some fireworks even though there might not be. Uh, a big electoral change in Cypress Medicine Hat in the next election. It really feels like we're like lying prone on the ground, clawing our way toward this election. It's excruciating. Am I the only one who feels that way? Let's oh, can no. we just get this over with? Right? We we've we've basically been like in camp I mean everybody's basically been in election mode for the past year almost, it feels like. I yeah. mean I remember last it was last summer, I think Jason Kenney made a big speech and it was seen as the, the everybody was touting it as the start of the election campaign and then Rachel Notley gave a big speech at the NDP convention in October and that was seen as the, the kickoff for the election campaign and then I think both of them have recently made speeches and then that was those were touted as the kickoff for the election campaign. But no, you're totally right. It's it's uh we've been in campaign mode. I think for conservatives, even longer. I mean, if yeah. we go back to the PC leadership race, that was March of 2017. And ever since then, I feel like it's campaign after campaign, whether it's the referendum vote or the UCP leadership. And then if you mix federal politics in there, we had a leadership race as well. So it's just never ending nominations and votes. And me personally, I'm, I'm very excited for this to be over. <laughs> I'm going to take a contrarian view. Uh, and, I, and I want to I, I want to kind of claim seniority here. I'm 67 years old. <laughs> uh, when I was 12 years old, I broke up a dinner party by announcing that I wanted to be a, a politician. That uh, appalled several of my parents' guests who were there. Uh, but but I've seen I voted in every election that I've been legally entitled to, with one municipal exception, since I was legally able to. And uh, and I think this is a very common situation. In fact, when there is a strong perception that uh, there's a strong possibility of change, regardless of what kind of change. So I think this sense that, uh, you know, we're really crawling toward an election, uh, although it's probably seeming to a lot of people in the NDP that it's coming down the track very quickly. But mm. but the reality is when there's anticipation of change or the potential for change, uh, then you have this sense that can't we just get it over with? I'm sick of hearing so much about it from all those mm. people who are intensely involved in it. So I don't really think it's an abnormal situation or an abnormal way to react to it. But, right. uh, uh, you know... There will be an election, and then someone's heart will be broken, and someone's won't be, and then we'll all move on. Exactly. So, a couple of things. I, I've got, and I'll be try to yeah, be yeah, quick totally. here. But but one is John Archer, uh, and I and I know John, uh, and I've known him for a long time, and I always take a personal interest when somebody I've known on the media side of things runs for pu- pu- public office. Uh, it's often a di- it's often a disappointing process for them because they've covered it, uh, they've been intensely involved in it, but it's a different game from journalism. Uh, although I think John brings some talents to, I do, of course, I don't know offhand who his UCP challenger is going to be or what the the situation will be down there, who he'll be running against. But but he is a serious man uh, and, and a very hardworking reporter, uh, and he was dogged 
Uh, and as a reporter, he was extremely determined and extremely hard to divert. And I once I want to tell you a story because I once found myself in a situation where my employer wanted to bury a story. And John was on to it. And he, it was just like you had a pit bull on your leg with his teeth driven into your leg. He would not let go until we were prepared to tell him what was going on. And he and he was so absolutely determined. And I so admire that in a reporter. And I so hated being on the receiving end of it, uh, particularly when my advice to my employer was, not my present employer, by the way, was to uh, uh, let, let the information become public. And uh, and they were determined not to. So, so I think very highly of John. And I think he'll be a great... Uh, MLA, whether or not he's on the government side or the opposition side, if he manages to get, election, uh, get elected. Whether he can do that's another matter. He also really looks like a serious, uh, he's, t he's tall and dark and thin, uh, and he has bought a very nice suit, I noticed in the pictures I saw from last <laughs> night. So he looks positively prime ministerial, so that's one thing. Now, the other thing I wanted to say, going back to an earlier topic we talked about, was St. Albert was an example where the writings were redrawn uh, in the two Previous St. Albert writings were rolled into one, and then another part of St. Albert was hived off into a semi, sort of semi-rural writing. And uh, so my MLA, who was Trevor Horn, uh, and the St. Albert MLA, who is Mary Renault, both fine people, but they both ran for the same nomination. Uh, and that meant that so somebody who was a sitting MLA was going to have to who was going to have to lose. Murray won. Uh, Marie's a ter terrific MLA and a hardworking person, and she's got a lot of respect in the community. Uh, Trevor was in the what I call the toenail where I lived. That was really that was sort of was, for electoral purposes, legally part of Spruce Grove, which is a long way away psychologically and in and in geographical distance. But but anyway, so there's an example. I don't think having done that, I don't think you'll see that he's going to run again, uh, in some other riding, although that may be as much his personal decision, but. Luckily for the UCP side and conservatives, most of our nominations in Edmonton have, have basically been completed in the fall, thankfully. I'm, I'm really happy that the ones I was involved in were done in September um, and October. But one that I'm watching for that's still open in Edmonton is Edmonton Meadows. A good friend of mine, um, Aaron Deep, is running for that nomination there. And I think that's going to be a, a pretty great race. And um, obviously, I'm a little bit biased being a friend of his, but it's one nomination I'm looking out for there and, and, and hoping he'll be able to take it home. Yeah, I think right now the, the there are six UCP nominations still open, five of them in Edmonton. Um, a few of them, I guess, aren't necessarily ones that, that the, the UCP will probably pick up. Edmonton, Strathcona, Edmonton Highlands, Norwood, uh, you know, longtime NDP ridings. Um, but then there are the other ones. It's, it's almost the entire, you mentioned Edmonton Meadows, and it's almost the entire southeast quadrant of Edmonton. Edmonton Meadows, Edmonton Mill Woods, and Edmonton Ellerslie uh, are the three three other ridings in Edmonton where the UCP hasn't nominated candidates. So I'm not sure why they, uh, they've they decided to hold those three off in that kind of geographic area for so long. Um, but uh, anyway, I just thought I thought that was that was kind of interesting. Hey, something that just popped into my head, and and Natalie, you may know the answer to this, but who who's the unnamed high-profile candidate in one of the Red Deer riders? Red, Red Deer, Deer South. South. Yeah. Well, they just opened that yesterday, I think, or a couple okay. days ago. Hmm. I have no clue. I know that they they had announced a few months ago that they yeah. were going to wait because there was a potential high-profile candidate coming in. Yeah, but I don't know who the name well, is. Sometimes so. what one person will think is a high-profile candidate, another person won't. So that may be if you're a party insider, for example, you might know the work someone's done. Uh, I've so I've run into situations like that where when the high-profile candidate finally emerges, you'd say, 
who? <laughs> I'll also admit to not knowing Red Deer very well. Yeah, well, people, me, me I don't neither. know very many people that yeah. live in Red Deer, so it could be someone very locally engaged, uh, a local community right. organizer or or a leader in the business community in Red Deer, but maybe not necessarily well-known outside of the Red Deer world. So I guess we'll have to see. Yeah, one of the theories that I'd heard was that it would be Tara Veer, who's the mayor of Red Deer. Uh, but then she came out a few, like a week or so after the UCP delayed the meet, delayed the nomination meeting, and said, "Actually, it's not me. I want to finish off my term." So that was kind of, I think, as an outside, as an outsider from from Red Deer, that was kind of the big one that I was thinking of automatically was, "Well, they, the mayor is going to run," uh, but that doesn't seem to be the case. Um, from what I've heard, the kind of the the, the rumor mill rumor mill down in Red Deer is that it, that, that it might be someone who's affiliated or associated with uh, and involved in the Canada Winter Games, which was just hosted in Red Deer, and that the the UCP were hoping to delay the nomination until after the Winter Games, so that whoever this person is will be able to le- depart their obligations from the Winter Games with and then run for the UCP nomination. So those games actually start next week. Yeah, and they'll run for fourteen or fifteen days. So maybe we won't know until after that. So it might, yeah, it might be after that. Yeah. So you know, I was the chair of the committee that organized the uh, provincial uh, special Olympics in in Saint Albert, and then right after that, I ran for city council <laughs> and I lost. So that's no guarantee. <laughs> so Ryan, our, our regular co-host Ryan Hassman is not here today, uh, and in his in his uh, in his absence, we're going to talk about his favorite political topic to discuss the Alberta party. <laughs> so it was a bit of a bombshell on Friday night. Uh, it was uh, announced, I guess, uh, uh, Alberta, um, the elections Alberta added to their, their list of ineligible candidates or candidates ineligible to run in, in elections um, added to their list, Stephen Mandel, former mayor of Edmonton, former progressive conservative cabinet, cabinet minister and current leader of the Alberta party. And five others. And five other Alberta party, <laughs> nominated Alberta party candidates and their chief financial officers. Including uh, my buddy Ali Hamour. <laughs> this apparently having to do with uh, either incomplete or late filed paperwork having to have related to their nominations that were required to be filed with Elections Alberta. Um, this was a shock and probably some, probably like, one of the worst case scenarios that any other part, any any party would think of, uh, on the almost an eve of an election, having the elections authority declare that your party leader can't run in the election. Um, <laughs> so because, because he didn't file the paperwork on time. What's what's changed though? Is this, this are there new rules around this, or or is this just a, you know, God's honest f up? Well. W- well, it's it, both. It's, it's yeah, it's both, and and it's new and it's new and it's not. The, the 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 first of all, the thing that's not new is the chief elections officer has the ability, and this has been in the elections act for quite some time, has the ability to uh, make a candidate or a chief financial financial officer ineligible to run in an election, and so it's penalty of either five years or eight years, depending on what the on what the infraction is, and the elections officer has the ability to decide what what. Uh, what uh, which, which totally over heavy handed heavy handed penalty mm-hmm. uh, he can apply to this um, in terms of the filing the papers around nomination races that's something that's new from the from after the last election one the the NDP have over the past three or four years been implementing new legislation and new reforms around uh, around elections and one of the things that they've done is they've brought the nomination process so that which is something that used to something that is an internal party process, but used to be exclusively an internal party process. They brought part of that under the elections under the elections act, and that partially has to do with 
donations made to nomination candidates are now counted as 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 part of your annual total that you can donate so that was part of the reason why they brought it under but also they it was under the kind of the guise of transparency that elections alberta would now maintain a list of anytime someone is planning on running for the, for a party nomination regardless of the party regardless of the party if you regardless if the party has even opened nominations in that riding the individual is required or supposed to notify elections alberta and their name is put on this list and we saw over the past year, the UCP was getting into, into trouble because you had people who were having, you know, incredible bozo eruptions who declared they're going to run for UCP nominations that weren't even opened yet. So the, the party, the parties are trying to figure out in terms of what kind of control they have over this list. So, so the, the, the nominations, once they're held, the candidates are required and they have certain deadlines to, uh, to file nomination, to file their papers with Elections Alberta. And this is way before an, an, the actual election is called. This has to do with a period of time after their party nominates them. And from what I understand happened, Mandel missed the deadline. His campaign missed the deadline. And, and the other candidates either missed deadlines or filled out their forms incompletely. Well, I think the the sound of it to me, my interpretation was that they all missed the deadline. The cl- uh, it sounds like it was because one party functionary who was supposed to do that job okay. uh, didn't do it. But I'm not certain of that. I'm not privy to their discussions. But there's no excuse here because whether or not the rules had changed, they did have a letter. And whether or not the letter was wrong, because there's some argument about the interpretation of the rules. But mm. they had a letter with a specific date by which you have to file from the chief electoral officer. So there's there's no excuse if you want to do this in missing that. And what about the the penalties? Like not being able to run in an election for five years seems extremely punitive. To They're me. way too harsh. Yeah, yeah. and that, that covers this election and the next election. Yeah. Yeah. They're way too harsh. I think yeah, I wouldn't be surprised everybody at this table agrees with that. But You know, I... I mean, I should give a little bit of a disclosure here. Uh, I, I've lived in, I lived in McClung most of my life, and I actually ran Lori Moseson's nomination campaign in Edmonton McClung. So, I mean, I, I have a vested interest in her electoral success. I'm, I'm great friends with her family and her kids. I obviously put a lot of, of my free time into helping her campaign on a volunteer basis, and I truly think she's a star candidate. Um, on the other hand, um, you know, I do want a fair race, and there are rules in place for a reason. Mm-hmm. And my mm-hmm. campaign had no problem getting the paperwork in on time. And I would expect the, the same from all the other candidates. I mean, it's, it, I don't think it really matters if the rules are, are fair or not in terms of the punishment. Because the deadline was posted next to your name on Elections Alberta's website. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's really straightforward. <laughs> and I mean, there was no nomination that, that even happened for the Alberta party in McClung. He was acclaimed. He had um, a, a nil return. He even said that in his yep. press conference yesterday. No expenses, no revenues. At that point, your your paperwork is literally like four signatures. It's, it's one big yeah. zero with, yeah, with four signatures. It's really on. not difficult. And so, I mean, I'm just, I'm flabbergasted, to be quite yeah. honest with you, that they the, messed this up so and bad. And the tone of the response is, uh, as I wrote in a blog, I wrote about this, this, it's, this is the, my dog ate my homework <laughs> response, right? Uh, oh, well, it was, uh, it, was some, it was some old guy who was a party functionary who was supposed to do this, and, and we didn't check with him. And he got so, sick or whatever. Or whatever. I mean, come on, guys. Well, and he <laughs> threw him under the bus so fast, yeah. and the Edmonton Journal just said, you yeah. know, it, this is because my RCFO got sick. Well, guess what? This is you know, the responsibility of not only you as your candidate as well, but your campaign manager and your CFO. Mm-hmm. It really yeah. wasn't difficult paperwork Wouldn't to fill you think out. he would have said, well, the CFO is sick. Is anyone taking care of filing those papers? Yeah, exactly. Yes. Uh, you know, to me, like, I, I, I've i just sort of, 
observed casually over the weekend and and I, I would say I have no vested interest in this. But this feels like uh, the PC party of, of yesterday and their sort of hubris, like just assuming they'd be able to... Do you know why it, could that be? I don't know. I know because they're the exact same party. No, I think that's unfair though because I think this is just complete incompetence to be quite honest with you. <laughs> well, sure. and, and it's true. That's fair because it's true that the PC party of yore was always had deep bench strength and lots of good people. So mm-hmm. and they probably remember, wouldn't have done this, right? I don't think any old PC party candidates or team would have let this happen mm-hmm. to be quite honest with you. And mm-hmm. I, I just think I'm going to play Ryan's role here for a little bit, but I just think that the Alberta party just proved that they're not, in, they're not competent. They're not competent to be leading this province. They're not a competent alternative to the UCP or the NDP at this point. Yeah. Um, you mm-hmm. combine their inability to file simple paperwork by a preset deadline with the fact that they didn't even uh, they raised just under six hundred thousand dollars in 2018 like they're not the government in waiting they're yeah. not even the opposition well, in waiting well, and at this, this is point. a party that's gone through several uh changes of personnel as it were on the basis of uh, the having a great name so they've gone from an extreme right-wing fringe party to this kind of uh alternative to the alberta liberals reformist centrist left party to uh the the new home for the red tories and uh, it's never really worked. It's never really been engaged. They've never been able to get on the radar uh, with voters, even though they've gotten a lot of a lot of I would say undeserved attention from people like us uh, because they're there and because now and again they attract high pe- profile people. They've had some good ideas, but really they've always been marginal with voters. And now is the time for it, that party to be put out of its misery. I think. So. Yeah, I mean, they still might be on Twitter, but I guess they haven't really <laughs> hit our ballots yet. But and you know what? Never say never, because these are, we live in an, we live in this social media era where some ho- horrible blunder can turn out to really work for you, yeah. uh, and when some very unlikely candidates can do well because of unlikely things. So, uh, who knows? I don't know. I just can't see Stephen Mandel. He's not the guy. Like failed health minister, come leader of the Alberta Party. It's. What a shitty narrative. He's going to be a third-string party leader, miserable in retirement, and then what? So then the Alberta party hey, has to rebuild again. Well, now he can't even run. So exactly. Well, so he's the only guy. He's the only guy, from my perspective, who's old enough for me to mock for being too old. <laughs> <laughs> and I did that once on social media recently, and I was attacked by all these people who accused me of being ageist, which <laughs> delighted me, I must tell you. <laughs> so, so, so the Alberta party, Steve Mandel's lawyers, are taking this to court. They're going to be taking it to the, trying to take it to the court of Queen's bench. Uh, to have it overturned. I think they want the judge to issue a waiver uh, to overturn the elections officer's ruling. Um, I, I mean, do you guys think it's likely that it'll over, get overturned? And, and if it doesn't, I guess if, if it does get overturned, do you think this is basically like Stephen Mandel's done like dinner? Like, do you think he can get over this? This, this is pretty embarrassing. Well, let's just say um, that might be a better idea of PC entitlement than what, <laughs> what was previously discussed. But no, I, I just don't think they have a case here. I, I don't think that missing a deadline that was specifically given to you because you were confused by a letter you received is an excuse. Not only that, you had a nil return and you couldn't file it right away. Like you have four months to do it. And so if you miss it by two weeks, like I don't really have much sympathy for you. Um, in terms of Mandel himself, uh, I mean, he was basically the party. Him and Greg Clark represented the Alberta party. And 
quite frankly, I feel really bad for Greg right now. Well, so maybe I, he'll so, be the leader. Well, yeah, that's it. <laughs> maybe so, he'll be the leader again. You so, never know. So if, if this doesn't get overturned, um, I mean, can can Stephen Mandel remain party leader going into the next election if he's not if he's not allowed to run as a candidate? Like, a this way he can try. Yeah. <laughs> what a disaster that would be. Do, do you, you think imagine? they'll bring Greg Clark back if that's the case? I think they'll have to. I really yeah. hope that Greg Clark does the thing from that Garbage Man episode of The Simpsons where they rehire the Garbage Man over Homer Simpson. And he comes on stage and he goes, oh, oh, gosh, you know, I'm not much on speeches, but it's so gratifying to leave you wallowing in the mess you've made. You're screwed. Thank you. Bye. Greg, Greg Clark owes, owes the Alberta party exactly nothing. And if if I mean, oh, yeah, but he's a loyal trooper. He'll, that's right. He'll do the right yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah, so anyway. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think that uh, they're going to have to go back to him. You see, when, you know, when just to go back to an earlier question, they, the courts make their decisions, as you guys all know, on the basis of the facts, which we've discussed and are clear, and the law, which we've discussed a little bit, but which also seems to be clear. Uh, so I don't see how he can win in court unless it was an unconstitutional dog that ate his homework. <laughs> <laughs> well, and if he gets an exception to that, I think there are going to be a lot of people very upset. Yeah, and it's, that might no be way. the nail in the coffin uh, for him in the in the end anyways. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a lose-lose situation regardless of what happens with this court case. Yes, the phrase done like dinner springs to mind, doesn't it? <laughs> Where is Sue Huff now that we need her? <laughs> I was at the 2011 convention when she stepped down as uh, as leader and she brought her guitar and she sang Somewhere Over the Rainbow and I thought... I didn't realize this was the high point of the Alberta Party history. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So I'm, I'm I'm sure there'll be there will there will be much more um, much more coming out uh, over over the next week or so on on what's what the heck is going to happen with Steve Mandel and the Alberta Party. I mean, as you said, you know they they've been around in different iterations for a number of years. Uh, even on, but even under Mandel's leadership, someone as as uh, as high profile as Mandel. They haven't been able to really get traction among voters, among fund in fundraising. You know, they're nominating candidates, and I mean, their slate is six less candidates today than it was last Thursday. Uh, but but they were they were nominating candidates, and they were getting ready for an election. But I mean, this is just seems such such like it's, it's such an inc- incredibly embarrassing thing for a political party to have to do. Well, imagine if you this were, close to an election. Yeah, imagine if you were an Alberta Party candidate in Calgary who had some credibility. Uh, no, I don't actually know they had anyone like that other than Greg. But if they did, uh, this really takes a lot of the wind out of your sails, right? Mm-hmm. Because now the the chances of them uh, having a little rump up here is not uh, mm-hmm. not very great. Mm-hmm. So. so, do you think if if Mandel doesn't, if he's not allowed to run, who do you think it's good for? In terms of the other two parties, because well, there's I a lot s- of talk about the yeah. Alberta Party. If you're if you're you know depending on what part of the political spectrum. Uh, you are on the you, you believe the Alberta Party is either going to split the vote with the UCP or split the vote with the NDP. So you want to go first. Sure. So I think in McClung itself, absolutely, it, it benefits Lori Moseson. I think that in that riding specifically, it was going to be a race between her and and Mr. Mandel. And I think if he's not allowed to run, um, it it does nothing but benefit her. However, I think for the UCP as a whole. They needed the Alberta Party to be strong to take some of that progressive vote away from the NDP. I really don't think that Alberta Party voters will swing from the Alberta Party to the UCP. I just don't see that happening. And so if I were if I were the UCP and Jason Kenney right now, I might be a little bit upset and I might want Mendel to be running, even if it's against one of our, our star candidates here in Edmonton. So this could make you think it could make a difference in some of the t- like the writings where the UCP and the NDP would be close. Like I the think kinda, so. Yeah. I think the Alberta Party had the ability to play spoiler uh, for the NDP. 
And so I would I would be a little bit cautious to uh, to to say that this is going to help the UCP at all. I actually think that think that maybe it, it benefits us in one or two ridings, but in the rest of the 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 swing ridings might actually hurt us. I'm going to go with what Natalie has to say because it's persuasive. And I must tell you, my own history with this question is I've gone back and forth and back and forth and back and forth on who they were more likely to steal votes from. Uh, and I don't, and I really don't know. Um, you know, I, I know we try for this uh, this tone of spurious authority and co- commentating on politics, but some, <laughs> some things are mysteries. And it is that because of the kind of previous appeal that they'd had and the previous tack they'd taken and the, and the current strategy they've been they've been following it's not clear if they were going to rob more from the UCP or from the NDP so so I but I think what Natalie says is quite persuasive and I and of course she's kind of saying what I hope is the case (laughs) and and on that topic uh, exactly four minutes ago the United Conservative Party Twitter account released a statement from UCP leader Jason Kenney on Stephen Mandel and it's basically saying that Mr. Kenny supports Stephen's judicial appeal of his disqualification and um, thinks that this is due to a minor administrative offense. So, so there you is have he, it. is he trying to uh, uh, to direct or to influence the course of judgment? I, I would th- of justice. I would think there's a scandal in this. This is nope. the sort of stuff oh, the that, next, they care, that they oh, attack the prime minister for. Let me finish with the next sentence. So he's basically saying that the elections Alberta is obliged to apply the law as written but the judiciary has the discretion to take into account other considerations. Boy, that, and I think yeah. the main point of, I mean, the next paragraph goes on to state that um, the elections laws should not be written to limit voters' choices because of small administrative mistakes. Except when it suits us. <laughs> <laughs> we, 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 we need that vote split. <laughs> well, no, I don't know. I just, uh, I would be surprised if the... If the courts would pay much attention to that, they're not going to haul them in for contempt of court for saying that. That's no, I don't yeah. think that's going to influence the decision one way or another. But, mm. um, you know, if I were any other political party or candidate, like I, this is my worst nightmare, to be quite honest on you. Like I have nightmares about my candidate not being able to run because I messed up or, or something like that. You know, like I'm going to be an official agent in the federal election. Mm. And one of my biggest fears is that I mess up and my candidate goes to jail. Like obviously not going to happen, hopefully, but very unlikely but it's a legitimate fear and and it's a fear as a volunteer that a mistake you make can harm someone's political ambitions if, so i would feel awful if i was a volunteer and i caused this to happen i would yeah. say this to you that if you've messed up badly enough to send your candidate to jail you'll probably be in jail with her yeah. so that's the thing don't, well don't, i don't look good in stripes don't so. don't don't hire Hopefully any robocall happen. companies that's uh, <laughs> just stay, stay away from robocalls i think that's extremely unlikely <laughs> clean campaigns only yeah. that's my motto The Dave Berta Podcast is brought to you by ATB Financial. If you're thinking of starting to invest, ATB Prosper might just be the place you need to check out. Whether you're saving for retirement, a major purchase, your child's education, or a rainy day, ATB Prosper helps you create a personalized investment plan to assist you in reaching your financial goals. It's easy to create, manage, and follow your progress through your customized digital dashboard. Start investing with as little as $100 and make additional contributions of as little as $25. To find out more, visit atbprosper.com. The podcast you're listening to is proud to be part of the Alberta Podcast Network powered by ATB. And so is mine. My name is Vanda and I'm the host of Tight Ends Podcast. 
I don't know much about football, but I know a tight end when I see one. If you're looking for a sports podcast without all the stats and numbers and even facts and figures, join Tight Ends Podcast, the sports podcast for the rest of us. Every week we find out what's up with Gronk, and we always have a great tweet of the week so you can follow along. Go to albertapodcastnetwork.com to find more great podcasts like Tight Ends Podcast. And remember, clear eyes, tight ends can't lose. It is February 10th today, and we are in the zone. As of February 1st, we are in the period where an election, a provincial election can be called at any point, any given time. Uh, Elections in Alberta are 28 days long, uh, and according to the Elections Act in our our strange fixed election window, which is something that's very unique to Alberta, uh, the election must be held between March 1st and May 31st every four years if the government is going to follow the fixed election uh, date legislation, which Premier Notley has said that she plans to follow. So we can expect an election, election call uh, coming anytime soon. Now, there are a few. We talked a little bit in the last our last episode uh, about some of the important dates coming up and some of the kind of the milestone dates that might impact uh, impact when an election is called. One of them being, and, and, and this kind of is, is kind of seen uh, by political watchers as kind of one of the last dates that will happen before the election, last important dates, is March 18th. Now, Premier Notley has said that the legislature will return and that a speech from the throne will be held, opening a new legislative session. Now, at the same time, right now, currently, the government of Alberta is holding consultations for a provincial budget. Uh, Finance Minister Joe Sisi held uh, two province-wide telephone town halls uh, this past week to talk about the budget. Uh, so the government, there's definitely wheels are in motion and, and the, the kind of the official consultation process is underway and, and the public relations uh, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, outreach process is underway to, to create a budget. Um, but there's a question of, is this, are they actually, is the NDP actually going to table a budget following the speech from the throne or is this just a ruse? Is, it a, is this pre-election campaigning? Yes, essentially, because we are in the are in the pre-election period at this point. Now, in previous years, it's not uncommon for a government to uh, to hold a speech from the throne, table a budget either the next day or a couple days later, and then spend a week or two debating the budget. Use using the the constituency week that MLAs have to send MLAs and cabinet ministers across the province to to basically promote the budget, which is which would essentially be a the the governing parties re-election platform and then call the election as soon as that's over this allow as soon as the constituency week is over giving the government kind of all the mechanisms of 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 government all the mechanisms that it has at its disposal to promote its agenda before dropping the writ now we are in strange political times this is nothing nothing is normal about about alberta politics um this is the first we have a the first uh, one, uh, the first new government uh, running for re-election in 44 years. So nothing is normal because everything is normal. Yeah. So, but do you guys think that uh, that a budget will actually be tabled after the throne speech? Well, I've I've been thinking that. Although you know, the recent discussion about the uh, the effect of the of the Alberta Party disaster puts a little interesting spin on that. But but I have thought that they will certainly have a, a throne speech because mm-hmm. because that's an opportunity in general terms to set out your your goals, but if you have a budget, then you can point to specific things. We are spending here and here and here. We're doing this, that, and the other thing, uh, and be fairly specific about your platform. And I know in my efforts 
uh, to try to dig out of the NDP, who, although I support them, don't communicate with me very much or very well. <laughs> that, that is a complaint of the, try, to try to dig out of them what their specific platform positions might be. Uh, they're very tight-lipped about it now, so I'm assuming they're waiting for some kind of document. Maybe it's just a party platform thing that will disappear after the election, or but maybe it's a Maybe it is a budget. So I wouldn't certainly wouldn't rule out there being a budget. If I were the NDP, I wouldn't want to campaign on a budget. Mm. Um, you know, I think the the throne speech is a great opportunity to to make that plea to Albertans. Like, look, we know things are bad, but we've been working on fixing it. We have a long term plan. Give us another chance. I think that's what the NDP's message needs to be. Mm. Give us another chance. Um, in terms of a budget, though, I wouldn't want to campaign on one. If I was the NDP, I would want to give myself every opportunity to. Um, call an audible, make some changes as the campaign goes on, and be able to have that flexibility to to, to not be committed to something that you set out in a budget. Um, but then again, with this Alberta party um, essentially blow up, I would be calling the election on Monday if I were Rachel Notley. I think that this, this loss in the Alberta party and the loss of their leader not being able to run is the biggest win that the NDP could have asked for. And if I were if I were Rachel Notley, I'd be calling the election on Monday. Oh, so when is this uh, podcast coming out again? The, the podcast is coming out on Monday. Okay, well, Rachel, <laughs> this could, <laughs> if you're listening, <laughs> call it now. <laughs> yeah, yeah well, I, I re- re- realize, of course, that, that you're getting that advice from a UCP. <laughs> <laughs> Can we put money on this? Yeah. Or what do we want to do here? Um, I, I, I'm kind of torn in terms of, of whether whether there'll be a throne, whether whether there'll be a, a budget or not. I mean, I think. I mean, there are two things coming up. So there's the 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 budget, which could potentially come after the throne speech. But there's also the by February 28th, the government is legally bound to release the third quarter financial update for the um, for the the provinces provinces finances. And and when that comes out, basically the only thing that gets focused on is is how how big is the deficit or the surplus. And that's the only thing that gets focused on. And in in this case, there's almost certainly going to be a deficit. So that's not going to be great news. It's going to be the same news. I don't think there's going to be any surprise, but it's basically going to be the same news that we've heard for the past few years is, yes, Alberta has a deficit. It's the probably maybe a bit, bit smaller because governments like to like to play with numbers. It might be a bit smaller than the previous uh, quarter update because then they can, then the government has the ability to say, look how what good, you know, what good financial managers we are. The deficit deficit's mm-hmm. actually lower, but there's still a deficit. So, where my where where my my line of thought goes with a budget is the the financial update is not going to be good news for the government no matter what whether it's a, a eight billion dollar deficit or, or if they can get it down to say a, a, for some reason a five billion dollar deficit it's still a, a big deficit what the budget allows you to do yeah there's a de- there'll be a, it'll be a deficit budget the NDP have said they're going to run a deficit budget for the next few years the UCP has said they're going to run a deficit budget for the next few years uh, everybody has basically said like there's no way to get out of immediately get out of out of uh, out of to, to balance the budget which is where all the political parties want to go um, but w- w- by tabling a budget if they do the NDP have the ability to con- contrast and create a narrative between them and the UCP. They're, they're able, they're, they have the ability to talk about the investments they're making in, in public in public services, talk about the investments they're making in public infrastructure, uh, and then almost for try to try to use the budget as a way to force Mr. Kenny to answer questions about mm-hmm. what exactly he would do. Um, I mean, Kenny's been coy and his messages have been mixed around over the past couple of years about what he's going to do with the provincial budget. Um, and 
what uh, what some UCP MLAs and UCP candidates have said. I mean, the NDP tried out the quote from David Hansen, the the and the UCP MLA for uh, up near, up in Bonneville, Cold Lake. Um, I can't remember Bonneville, Cold Lake, St. Paul. I think that's the new yeah, riding yeah. he's nominated in. Yeah, the the quote that the you know that that it's going to hurt um, and. I, I bet that Mr. Hansen is regretted, regretting ever saying that saying that quote because it's something that's being trotted out at again and again and again. Uh, but by balance, by tabling a budget, the NDP then have a have a have a uh, 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 a platform, a template, a, tem- a template, yeah. yeah, to kind of try to contrast and force Mr. Mr. Kennedy to answer questions about what a UCP government might do with the budget. That said, I mean, it, there's a, there are upsides and downsides of tabling a budget right before an election. Um, I was looking, I think we read around the last episode we, t- we recorded, I was looking at the last 10 elections and whether governments have tabled budgets or just done a throne speech before the election. And I think six out of the past nine elections, the governments, the PC government tabled a throne speech or read a throne speech and tabled a budget. And then there were three elections, I think, where they just did a throne speech and then went into the election. So this is very typical in yeah. terms of what the NDP is doing. Uh, one th- th- point of frustration for me with the NDP government has been, I think they're too much influenced by the public service, which it can be a good thing, uh, but in some ways is not a good thing. And they're not at times, poli- they're naive about, or they have acted in a naive way about hardball politics at times. Um, and I think they need to, whatever they decide to do, they need to play hardball here because uh, they are, uh, in a deficit position in terms of votes right now, so they need to find a way to recover if they're going to win. Uh, and strategically, doing what the civil service advises you in circumstances like this might not be the right thing. So I think they're they're inclined towards process, and they're quite a competent government, in fact, on the process side. But uh, they're uh, they're they they can be weak on the political side, and that's lack of bench strength and experience. Yeah, and I think maybe that's where the UCP has their strength right it now, sure which is, is on that yeah. that political organizing side, how oh, to play the game of politics. Right. And and I think maybe one thing that me as a UCP supporter is going to be waiting for from my side is their plan on on what they're going to do or, or just acting like the government and waiting. Um, right now we have the NDP on their toes, basically acting like the opposition. They have found every single pain point that Kenny and the UCP don't want to be brought out. I don't know how many times I've had to hear about abortion this week or about scary cuts to healthcare or education. Dave, we heard that on, on uh, Thursday from, from some teachers about mm-hmm. how there's this fear mongering going on about what the UCP will cut and how, how dangerous that will be. And I mean, really the UCP has maybe said in one or two writings by a couple candidates that, but it's never been official messaging. Well, there's not much official messaging at all about what their plans are. Well, and that's so. the thing. So I, I really want uh, a little bit more substance. I mean, I think Alberta voters are very sophisticated, mm-hmm. and this isn't federal politics. These are issues that hit close to home. This isn't about buying jets or foreign policy or NAFTA negotiations. This is our schools, our hospitals, your kids' tuition for university, like these are all very tangible things that provincial politics has an impact on in your life and in your home, your family, your well-being. And that's something that we we really need to start seeing um, from all parties, really. I think both the NDP and the UCP haven't done a great job of connecting with voters and, and making them feel like the policies actually influence their lives and, and how it's very tangible to their everyday life. 
um, all of the parties are just throwing out a lot of like the fear lines and the talking points and the scare tactics, especially on Twitter and a lot of half-truths. Tr- half and we're starting to see a lot of cynicism coming from voters. Uh, and I'm, I'm really thinking that a lot of people are frustrated by this and they want a little bit more substance and we need to give voters a little bit more credit to their sophistication. Well, I think I agree with you insofar as saying uh, that we need to have actual policies from, from all parties. Uh, I would also say, though, that there, I th- some of what you've described as fear-mongering, I feel, is legitimate fear. And, and part of that fear is contributed to by the fact that we don't actually know what the party's policy is on those things. So, the, so around the abortion issue, the abortion issue is, is an issue, I think, not so much because of Mr. Kenny's historical views on the topic, but because of the activities of the Wilberforce Project and other groups like that, that uh, uh, who appear to be uh, get it, trying to get significant numbers of candidates to, to into office as UCP MLAs. So if that's a, that's, a, I would be worried about that. I am worried about that, but I would be particularly worried about that if I were a woman, right? I think that's maybe so. lo- more legitimate though than than bringing out old videos of Jason Kenny from the early 1990s. Um, you know, he's well. Come on, you know what's his name? Ezra Levant uh, once caught uh, Premier Notley wearing a. I don't know a Mickey Mouse watch or something, some politically incorrect figure, uh, and there was a and there was a big brouhaha about that. So people do this. He also once attacked me for having a Cuban flag in my lapel. So. <laughs> <laughs> you know, on that topic of the Wilberforce Project, though, I mean, like I I personally don't think that there is a a, a, a complicit UCP kind of like I'm okay with this with the Wilberforce Project. Uh, I think that the this is a third party group that has figured out how to work the system, how to play politics, and knows how to best get their their agenda through. And and that in the UCP is by getting their candidates nominated to be on the ballot and getting policies passed at the, the UCP AGM. And so I, I really think that um, these third party groups, they know that the best way to get their influence across is through influencing nominations and getting their candidates on the ballot. And it's it's quite honestly, in my opinion, when you have a third party group that's a one issue focused sort of agenda, it's really easy to mobilize votes for that. It's a lot harder to mobilize votes for a a moderate candidate who maybe doesn't have as radical of a view on one thing or another, but it's really easy to get people riled riled up about one particular topic and get them out to vote for it. And we've seen that in federal politics, we sat in provincial politics all the time, and it's really nothing new except that now we've got 87 open nominations for the UCP, and they've realized this is our time. Right. Well, this may be an inherent flaw with democracy or with parliamentary democracy, is that if you're going to have people from, let's call them special interest groups, uh, trying to get a lot of candidates nominated and they succeed, then you're going to have uh, their opponents who take a dramatically different view of that attack that point. So I, I don't, I mean, I just, I find it, e- even if I were on the other side of this issue, I would find it hard to... Uh, to fault the other side for attacking that because it's a it's a legitimate concern and a legitimate point of attack. I think this just goes to show that we need broader involvement in the public in the political process. The nominations are one of the easiest ways to have your say in who your candidate's going to be for your party in a nomination. And it's something I've written about um, in McLean's a couple of months ago about how open nominations and free memberships can also just increase the number of people coming out to vote, can increase you know, the, the 
the broadness of your political party and can really sort of moderate some of those views and make sure that nominations aren't hijacked by special interest groups who have a particular motivation on one specific topic. I don't think it's avoidable. I'm just gonna I'm gonna raise the specter of uh, proportional representation <laughs> and then drop it. But but we could we could move to proportional representation and then we just move the moment at which this becomes a, pro- a problem closer to the point when a government's being formed. Yeah. So this is this is part of democracy and we have to all live with it. Yeah, I mean like the Wilberforce knows knows the game. They know how to be influential and they've done a very good job of it. Yeah. I don't think they particularly like me very much and and the feeling maybe goes the other direction as well but i'm not going to be mad that they play the political game better than the rest of us do well here's the here's the thing though that we've missed in this is that actually this is is really on the table right now this is an issue again right now because the wilberforce group made a mistake and that was their political action guy published a braggy blog about how many candidates they had and reminded everybody of what they've been up to. And that, and that had been successfully being kind of pushed to the background by the, by the UCP. And now all of a sudden it's back at full heat. And uh, I'm sure that, uh, what's his name, Cam, someone uh, who is their uh, political action person. Will, Wilson, is, I think his yeah, name is. Yeah, I'm sure he's kicking himself for having published that when he did. Because it because it did remind everybody of what's been going on and raise that issue again. Well, I think just, they're pretty uh, proud though. Like they're not ashamed of this. Like well, they're very proud to have influenced oh, a lot of nominations. And and right now has been saying very similar things in their email blasts where they brag about helping a nomination candidate who's pro life in this writing or they've been successful in this writing. They're just very good about not naming names. And so uh, on that point, like I don't think that they're ashamed at all. They're very proud of the influence that they've had in the nominations to date. And I mean when we have only a handful i think six nominations left to go they've basically played their power as much as they can and there's really not much anyone else can do at this point well maybe i i feel that they they have hurt the ucp a bit at least at this moment and it'll be uh, and so and for, for forcing the leadership to concentrate on an issue they'd rather not be concentrating on that's a bad one for them if only to get rid of it so that's uh, a great point i don't think know. jason kenny wants to be talking about this issue no, at all doesn't. and i i quite honestly don't think it's an important issue to him no. Well, I don't know. I, I mean, uh, I, I'm skeptical of that, but <laughs> but it may not be strategically an important issue, but I'm sure it's an important moral issue to him, right? But anyway, I just think that this was a kind of a strategic blunder on the part of a group of their supporters, but we'll see. Yeah, I mean, the UCP has always been talking about how they want to be the free enterprise market-based party. And that's been something Jason's been talking about for months now since he was running for UCP leader. Even when he was running for the PC leadership and talked about a new United Party, he wanted to be based on on a free enterprise um, fiscal conservative party. Except when there's a market failure in pipeline building. <laughs> <laughs> no, but this, 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 uh, I mean, the, the involvement of, of the Wilberforce project and them being so at least in this one blog post, being so open about their involvement and and braggy about their involvement in, in the UCP nominations. I mean, I think it does. I mean, you know, Jason Kenney's talked about how he wanted to create this free enterprise political party, but I mean, it's it's undeniable. But that that part of Jason Kenney's electoral coalition are social conservatives. That there is a Jason Kenney is a social conservative. You know, he may not talk about abortion issues and may not talk about that now, but but his political roots are in social conservatism. Um, you, the you know the people who were part of his electoral coalition when he ran for the Progressive Conservative Party leadership and then ran for the UCP leadership. Um, this is part of his group. So I mean, it's it 
if if groups like Wilberforce are going to are are going to bring actively bring up this issue, which is you know controversial, and and people have very heated and and passionate opinions on both sides of the of of the abortion issue, um, if they're going to bring it up and they're going to make it part of of the campaign, and they're going to make they're, they're going to make it. Um, you know, part of their support for candidates to win UCP nominations. I mean, I think it's going back to the to the the NDP talking about, but you know, responding to this. I think it's it's fair game in an election period. Um, I think it's fair game in general if if uh, uh, because they're the ones who are bringing it up. So I mean, and it does it. I think it is a we. It is a in well. It 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 is a difficult issue for the United Conservative Party because. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't think they really want this ish, this election to be, or even part of this election to be about abortion, because I don't think that's a great issue. No, I, I really don't think that's a focus for them at all. And uh, but to be quite honest, like I don't think we should be surprised that the Wilberforce has had such a, a grand amount of influence in these nominations. Or I mean, I don't even know how much influence they've had. To be quite honest with you, um, they say they've had a lot, but they really tried to exert their influence for the first time at the UCP AGM. And I didn't spend a lot of time in that policy room, but their their leadership team was at the mic quite a bit, advocating for policies that fit their agenda. And so that's that was my first hint or indication that they had a lot more coming down the pipe. And so I think for a lot of maybe UCP supporters or people that have been involved for the last little while, we're not typically surprised whether or not we we actually agree with them or not. We, we saw this coming and we have seen this coming for a long time, but maybe it's just now the rest of Alberta is starting to see just how much influence they've had. It should be no surprise to anyone who's been paying attention to Alberta politics over the past few months that uh, if the issue uh, is not pipelines, 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 uh, political parties are talking about jobs of the economy. That seems to be the, the, the kind of the three biggest issues um, that, that get the focus in the media and for political parties uh, as we go into the election. So I'm, I'm going to ask, because I'm sick of talking about pipelines, I'm so sick of talking about pipelines, uh, I'm going to ask our guests if they could share with us one or two uh, uh, issues that they believe aren't getting the attention they deserve in Alberta politics ahead of the election, and, and why are these issues important? So, uh, Natalie, maybe we'll start with you. Healthcare. It's one issue that I expected the NDP to be a lot better on than they have been. So I, I may be a partisan, but at the end of the day, I don't want my province to do poorly just because the political party that I don't support is in power. That's absolutely not the case. I really do want the best for Alberta, and I I think all political parties also want what's best for Alberta. Um, But I I really expected the NDP to do better at addressing things like um, hospital wait times for for surgery or wait times to see a specialist. Uh, You know, I think Alberta spends almost $3 billion a year or more than BC does on healthcare yet we still have very similar wait times and outcomes. And this is something I thought the NDP was going to address or look towards. I thought that would be one of their priorities. And and just going on from that, you know, I have a cousin who's a podiatrist, and she's saying that the fee guide for podiatrists hasn't increased since 1990. So the fee that they can charge to Alberta Health Services hasn't increased in, in almost 30 years. And the impact that the dental fee guide has had on on businesses and dentists and their ability to keep their doors open. So these are all just things that, I mean, I think the NDP had their best intentions at heart, but we're not really seeing a great outcome at the end of the day in this. You know, I have to jump in there because I you see you should never let your opponent set the agenda for you, <laughs> set the narrative. Uh, so my first on this list was healthcare as well, and what I wanted to talk about was what a terrific job, in my view, uh, the NDP has been doing of ensuring stability in the healthcare system. And this is I've lived in Alberta now for I don't know 
30 years and, uh, and and more than that really because I was here before and this is the first four years that there hasn't been a continual ongoing healthcare crisis so you can you can pick at points in terms of well they haven't reduced the wait times as much as they should have but I really think on balance uh, they've been doing a great job of running uh, a healthcare system that is not in crisis, and and in fact, their success is kind of working against them because it's no because this is no longer showing up on the top of people's concerns because it's working so well, uh, and so it's not it's not the number one front of mind issue for a lot of voters because because it's stable and because they're not sensing that the that the whole system's in crisis. So yeah, emergency room time rate waits could be shorter, but uh, I've had to use an emergency room in the last couple of years with a with a sick family member and and was impressed at actually at how well things worked in a lot of ways so i don't know i mean i guess uh, my fresh my point of frustration around this i agree with you this far is that i don't think the ndp has done as good a job of emphasizing this in terms of the election campaign or the coming election campaign as they should have uh, and this goes back to that criticism i have about them being too much process oriented and not enough politically oriented so I'm, I'm sorry to have jumped in when it wasn't really my time, but like I say, they never let the other guy set the narrative because now you have. This might have been the first point of contention we've actually had this whole hour. <laughs> well, I got more. Okay. What's, well, what? one other thing in this, actually, I have to give credit where credit is due. I, the phrase that I'm going to use, I got from Dave Cornway. <laughs> uh, but but the, the NDP's reform of boards, agencies, and, and like bodies really ended the Tory spoils system from many years in the past. And I think they've done a great favor to Alberta by doing that. I agree with what, when Dave and I discussed this at a, on an earlier occasion, that his point that it would be very difficult for a future conservative government to put things back the way they were. Uh, and I think that's a huge success for the NDP that d deserves to be talked about some more. Uh, and then I have one other little thing, but I'm going to leave that for a second, and maybe we can deal with that in the quick, the quick points at the end. Natalie, got anything else? No, nothing. Okay. Just like a very niche issue, but I don't think it really fits right now. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, I, here's my little niche issue: is that I think that that maybe, or maybe I'm just nuts here, but we need to talk about the Lukasik factor <laughs> in this in this election. Is that Thomas Lukasik, the former deputy premier and former labor minister, has been uh, with time on his hands, sniping away at the government on social media pretty effectively on some of these issues. And I think he's starting to have an impact. And, and so that raises a whole bunch of questions about, you know, what should Thomas do and, uh, and, where, and where, will Tom, where will Thomas go after this? <laughs> and, and if Thomas Lukasik, through his, uh, his campaign against uh, Jason Kenney, uh, pulls the fat out of the fryer for the NDP, how much credit can they give him <laughs> since he's a conservative? Well, I can't leave this talking about Thomas the Kazakh, so I guess I'm going to have to bring up my niche issue. <laughs> he's, he's my neighbor, I have to tell you. So, <laughs> Okay, well, I'll bring up my niche issue. So I, I really have uh, a lot of friends who are Canadian medical school grads, Canadian medical residents, um, they've done their undergraduate degree, medical school, residency, all in Alberta. And I think what a lot of people don't realize is just how heavily subsidized their education is. So what really upsets me is when I, I'm, I'm at this point now in my life where all of my friends are, are graduating from residency or medical school and they're starting to look for jobs and, and they're not able to find work or sustainable work or full-time work as a Canadian medical grad because of various flaws in the system that exist um, various loopholes that are being taken advantage of, and they're actually losing out on a lot of these full-time opportunities to international medical school grads 
or people coming in to fill these positions. And that's leaving these Canadian medical grads who we as taxpayers very much subsidize their education and their training and, and we're leaving them hanging out to dry. So I really want that to be something that's addressed moving forward. And, and I hope that we can bring that issue more to the forefront because we spend hundreds of thousands of dollars training each medical professional or, or physician that graduates the Canadian program. And a lot of them are really struggling to find jobs and I think we need to do a better job there. Okay, well, you need to, and this now is not the time for this, but you need to tell us more about what, what the structural things in their way are, because that sounds like an interesting story that I'd certainly write about on my blog. Yeah, let's so. talk about that. This is the point of the show where we dip into our mailbag and answer listener questions. We've got quite a few. So we're going to do a lightning round. Um, I'll ask the question, and then we'll direct the answers around the table. And when you've all had a chance to answer, we'll move on to the next question. How does that sound? Sounds good to me. Yep. Okay. Our first question comes from Kara Little. And Kara wants to know the best way to learn how political parties operate. She says she's never been a member and not sure if she wants to be, but would like to see how they work. Is it possible to attend constituency meetings, party functions, etc., just to observe and learn? Natalie, why don't we start with you? How how can Kara learn more about the operations of political parties? I love this question because this is how I got involved in politics. Um, I When I graduated university, I had a friend of mine say, you know what, I think you need to get involved in conservative party. Let me introduce you to your writing association president. She took me for coffee. We hung out for two hours. She told me what it's all about, what the board does. And ever since then, I've been a member of that board and I've been hooked ever since. So Kara, I think you need to reach out to your constituency association president Ask to go for coffee and go from there. Dave, any advice for Kara on uh, getting more involved, uh, getting a better understanding? Well, now is is probably the most exciting time to get involved in politics because we have an election coming up, both both a, both a provincial election and a federal election coming up in the fall. Um, so find a candidate or find you know find someone you're interested in, a, a political party that that matches your your values, and find your candidate and go out door knocking. And that's the most exciting part. I, I'm, you know, I'm going to be honest constituency politics is like i find is most the the most boring part of political party politics oh don't say that it's 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 you know it's not definitely not the most exciting part not if you're doing it right Dave. yeah (laughs) so well maybe i've just been not not involved in the parties that do it right but uh, but definitely during election campaigns it's it is the most exciting part so now's now's the perfect time because you have you can find a candidate in door knock provincially and then federally in in the fall yeah political parties are like unions they're always desperate for volunteers (laughs) uh and there's no and if you're and if you're unhappy and reading between the lines of that question uh i sense that carol's kind of she says well i don't know that i want to be involved tells me that i'm not really happy with what i'm hearing well this is a democratic system get in there and change it because you can you can have a lot of influence in groups that are desperate for volunteers so uh natalie's given us a great introduction and i think that the absolutely the best way is to get involved great excellent answers everybody Our next question comes from frequent flyer Mountain Ted, and Ted wants to know why, in your opinion, has the provincial government and Alberta NDP been so quiet on Bill C-69? So before we answer this question, who can do a quick brief on C-69? Well, Bill C-69 is essentially, it's, it's, it's a bill that reforms the environmental assessment process, the consultation process uh, around new... Uh, infra- infrastructure projects like pipelines, and that's right. that's what's got people's attention. Now, this doesn't impact the current um, Trans Mountain pipeline and, and the process that, that that's undergoing, but this will impact future processes. So, basically, it's ta- a lot of it is taking what was a lot of the issues that were raised in the fed- by the Federal Court of Appeal 
when it halted the Trans Mountain Pipeline, and mm-hmm. it's introducing that into legislation. Okay. It's federal legislation. It's federal, yeah. It's right. federal legislation. Yeah. That's important to note. But this, if, you, if you'll forgive me, is kind of a, an opposition talking point that isn't really true. Uh, the NDP, maybe they didn't start early enough. That's what the UCP would say, but they have been screaming about it, and they have been going to Ottawa and making representations about it. Uh, and I think this is a question that's sort of, it, it's, uh, my sense is it's spun a little bit to make it sound like the NDP is doing less than they in fact are. All right. What do you think, Natalie? You're going to get the last word on this question. So why why has the government been so quiet if you accept the premise of the question? <laughs> well, I, I think the Alberta NDP knows what they need to do to get reelected. And maybe jumping in on a federal issue isn't going to be that, especially a federal issue that's going to actually make resource development a little bit more difficult in Alberta. The the Alberta NDP has, has basically decided they're pro-oil and pro-pipeline. And so at yeah. this point, I don't think it really benefits them to make an enemy out of the federal liberals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's an elite consensus, you're right, on in Alberta on uh, on what hap- has to happen with the pipeline. That's yeah. another story. Yeah, and, and I will just add one more point on Bill C-69 that uh, even though uh, uh, the opposition is, you know, the, the big talking point is that this will basically halt any other pipeline project, uh, Green Party leader Elizabeth May uh, voted against Bill 669 because she didn't believe it went far enough to stop future pipeline construction. So that was, you know. although that, that's a case of letting what is it that you know letting the perfect be the enemy of the good. Yeah, yeah. I guess we all have uh, similarity somewhere. So, hey? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Our next question comes from Joey Oberhofner. Uh, Joey had to, felt he needed to say to start his question with in seriousness. So in seriousness. Why can't we agree on which facts are true, depending on which politician is speaking? Last month, either thousands of new private sector jobs were created net or thousands were destroyed. So which is it? Well, I actually, I, I mean, that's a good question. It is a serious question, but there's, there's spin and there's facts. And you've, and you've heard the line about, well, we, we don't have the right to make up facts. We have the right to interpret them. But, but the, I, I, there's an awful lot of spin. There's, a cert, there's all, inevitably a certain amount of incorrect facts uh, get into it get into the in, into a situation like this in politics. Uh, I can't answer the question with confidence because I don't know what set of numbers the person's referring to. Usually all the numbers are right, but uh, you have to, they require some interpretation. Uh, you know, if I understand where Joey's numbers are coming from, they're usually from StatsCan. And my my favorite thing, the I work at ATB Financial. Every weekday we publish The Owl, which is an economic mm-hmm. newsletter. And I can always tell we've written something really balanced when each side of the mm-hmm. spectrum lays claim to it either being a good news story or a bad news story. I think they're talking about the stuff that stats can kicks out, which if, the if we're talking of- about long term permanent jobs as opposed to part time jobs, I think it's interesting that the UCP has been attacking the government because there have been more part time jobs created than permanent jobs when the UCP advocates policies that encourage the creation of part-time jobs rather than permanent jobs that's my interpretation but, i feel like we should i but, feel like we should go to natalie well, no, you should because because that may be a little unfair but so, no. i i don't know what what joey is specifically referring to again at what study he's talking about but i mean cynically politicians are always going to use the pick and choose which phrase or facts are going to best suit their narrative mm-hmm. and so i i'm i don't know specifically what he's referring to here but my guess is that you could interpret various fragments of sentences one way or another based on what party you're part of. And of course, politicians are going to jump on what sounds the best for them. Well, it's easy to cherry pick. 
Yeah. You know, and we yeah. see the Fraser Institute does this all the time. They'll mm -hmm. pick uh, five jurisdictions where their case is strongly made, and they'll ignore six other jurisdictions where the case isn't so strongly made. So, context but matters. Context yeah. And I don't matter, think yeah. that's we don't we don't get a lot of context when we have to deal with talking points and Twitter right. mm -hmm. to get yeah. the political messages out. And that's my biggest disappointment with the rise of social media in politics is yeah. that we lose a lot of context. Let's not be too hard on politicians, though, and I want to say this, is that the, the, the public wants certain kinds of answers. Uh, and, and, and when we're in silos, ideological silos, our supporters tend to want certain kinds of answers. So there's a real, there's real risk in giving an honest answer if you're a politician. If you say, well, mm -hmm. we cannot maintain services at the present level if we don't raise taxes. Well, then the voters will go out and vote for, for the other guy who's made that promise, and then they'll complain that politicians always lie to them. Well, they <laughs> lie to them because the public ignores their, their honest <laughs> statements. Yeah. People only listen for a certain amount of time. Yeah. Yeah. We've yeah. created the situation ourselves. There was a great episode of This American Life a few years ago, and if I can find the link, I'll put a link to it on the on the on the with the with the podcast when we post it. But it was about talking about how they they walked through how basically how difficult it is for politicians to actually create private sector jobs. How it's basically mm -hmm. impossible for politicians to create private sector jobs. Mm -hmm. um, so I mean, we we're in the situation where politicians are either blamed for you know take credit for for jobs that are created or blamed for jobs that disappear now. Uh, they walked through in this episode uh, Scott Walker from Wisconsin, who I think he claimed that he was going to create ten thousand or fifty thousand new jobs, and then they and then he tried to like torque the numbers to make it look like he did, and they actually went through the numbers and said actually they created like nine hundred or only nine hundred jobs were but were actual jobs were created, but um, so that that was actually that was an inter interesting it was well, it was yeah. interesting, and I mean it was politicians they it's really difficult to create private sector jobs. Well, and sometimes some. Uh, thoughts are so successful that we come to believe things that aren't true. Case in point, uh, that small businesses create most jobs. The reality is, in the private sector, big business creates most jobs. Uh, yeah, but, the, but that statistic was based on a statistical anomaly in the United States during the Clinton years, and it's come to be held as a kind of worldwide universal truth. Hmm. So, All right, well, Joey, I, I feel like we tried very hard to answer that question. So Ryan sure. Hastman... Has, Who is this Hausman guy? I don't know. Sounds he, like a real troublemaker. Sounds mm -hmm. disreputable. Sounds familiar. Yeah. <laughs> so he says, long-time listener, first-time questioner here. I'd like your take on the Liberal Party of Canada SNC-Lavalin story. Uh, Justin Trudeau got rid of his AG, Scott Bryson, mis mysteriously retiring. And if this is the same old Liberal Party doing what it always does. An unloaded question from Ryan Hausman. Well, of course it's the same old Liberal Party <laughs> doing what it always does. That's... that's uh, always the assumption with the institutions and the, and the Liberal Party, the L-shaped party is a famous book about it, described it, uh, has, has always, uh, you know, it, it has a long history. But, but whether the situation is exactly as Ryan is describing it is not yet clear. Uh, so I have to say, like uh, Joanne Lai said of the French Revolution, it's, it's too soon to judge. Okay. Uh, and so I don't really know what's going on, and I don't think any of us really do. Uh, it, may, it may spin out that... Uh, Mr. Trudeau's position is more defensible. It may not, and I'm not prepared to guess. Yeah, I think. I mean, part of the the scandal or the coverage so far is that we don't know a lot of things, and and Jody uh, Jody Wilson Rayburn isn't talking publicly, and we're not. Mm -hmm. The media isn't really getting the answers that they're looking for. Mm -hmm. uh, just from a, a from a um, I guess a, a media relations standpoint, this doesn't look like the Trudeau government is doing a stellar job handling this issue because it's it seems like it's just kind of spiral spiraling totally out of their control and kind of affirming or reaffirming what people 
kind of be- the kind of corruption people kind of a lot of people believe takes place within the Liberal Party. Remember now, what Herb Dallywell said the other day, though, about uh, about uh, the negotiations with the with the Chinese government about these Canadians who are being held in jail there. Uh, you know, uh, sometimes in politics, w- when you're dealing with matters of state, you can't reveal all the facts. Mm-hmm. And that might be the so, case. Maybe, maybe we'll 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 learn some stuff in the, in the coming week that that. Uh, that stamps out this scandal and, and we'll learn that it's not really as big a deal. But uh, I don't think that, I don't think at this point, at least they're doing themselves any favors by the way they're mm. handling mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Natalie, I get to say my favorite phrase right now, which is <laughs> something doesn't pass the sniff test. <laughs> and I, I mean, it would be, it's something's fishy here. Yeah. Something just doesn't sit right with me about this. You know, we've got this feminist prime minister, and I, I say that sarcastically. If the, the voters can't see my face right now, or sorry, the listeners can't see my face, but we have this feminist prime minister here essentially demoting a high-ranking female cabinet minister, the very first indigenous justice minister and attorney general. And we we just, it's so bad for their image. Yeah. No matter what the facts actually are right now, this just looks so bad for the Liberal Party. And just based on the things that are coming out that have made mainstream media coverage, like something's not right. And it, it looks like it's going to fall on the face of PMO. And I mean, time will only tell what we see coming from this. And, you know, I think there's just, you see more of that when you look at what happened with Scott Bryson and the Vice Admiral Norman trial. Um, just something isn't right. Mm-hmm. And it's really going to blow up in the liberals' faces at a really inopportune time. Yeah, the timing is awful. Also, trial, like, yeah. the timing is phenomenally it's, bad. It's like this. sketchy activity with a Quebec-based company and the National Liberal Party. Like, we've we've seen this before. Yeah, it fe- I mean, sorry, it feels like we've seen this before. Isn't it a tragedy that this happens at a moment when the NDP has such a weak leader? <laughs> 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 if, ja- if, if Jack... Leighton was still a leader. Oh, yeah. Then in the next election in 18 months or whenever it was, we would have an NDP government. <laughs> the liberals are just doing this to themselves. Though. Like The liberals are not doing themselves any favors and are basically reminding Canadians themselves that liberal is synonymous with corruption or scandal or mm-hmm. or conflict of interest. And with this, with this case that's going to court with uh, Vice Admiral Norman, I mean, it's the worst possible time for them. It's going to overlap complete with the federal election and the writ period. And they, I would be worried if I were them. But mm-hmm. on that point, yeah, if, if Jagmeet Singh and the NDP could pick it up a little, I think this would have been a great opportunity for the federal conservatives. Big time. <laughs> All right. Uh, la- next question is from Fake Ezzy. Uh, Fake Ezzy wants to know, how do you think the televised debates and debates in general, if any, will play out in the provincial election once the writ is dropped? Will there be more than one debate? Will there be any debates? Uh, what about all the can- the all-candidate forum attended by all party leaders who will be asked to any TV debates. I'm going to, I'm going to go on record and say Stephen Man- Mandel might not be at any of these debates, <laughs> well, <he laughs> but, might, well, he... but they can have Derek. <laughs> <laughs> well, so yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a good question. Will that the, will the freedom question. conservative party well, have standing to debate on it on TV? You know, in, 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 in this is it, there, the way televised debates work in Alberta. Now we've had televised debates since 1993 and, they're decided by who basically the rules and who gets to participate are decided by the kind of conglomerate of media companies that that get together to host these debates so these are privately owned companies so post media it'll be post media and Uh, shaw yeah well (laughs) uh, they're typically hosted the last one was hosted at global did you think post media will allow the ndp to take part (laughs) (laughs) or and does cbc have any standing i think they're all involved and you typically have reporters or or columnists from each of the major 
participants ask, be able to ask questions or, or, right. or play a role in that. Now, the the issue is is that they've been it's been inconsistent in the past. So sometimes party leaders with no MLAs get invited, like 1997 when Pam Barrett, NDP leader, and Randy Thorstensen, leader of the Social Credit Party, neither parties had any MLAs going to election into that election. Neither party had elected an MLA in the last that pre- the previous election, but they were both invited to join. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's cases where. Uh, parties with with MLAs who weren't elected in the last election, but who crossed the floor, but weren't allowed to participate in the debate. I think I'm thinking um, uh, Paul Hinman when he was the leader of the Alliance, Alberta Alliance Party the first time. Um, I'm thinking about Glenn Taylor when he was leader of the Alberta Party, even though the Alberta Party had an MLA, but he wasn't the MLA. So they're they're somewhat inconsistent, and they're going to get into. I mean, it could be it could be challenging this time. If what if you know what if 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 the Alberta Party with three MLAs has a leader who isn't running in the next, isn't actually running as a candidate. What, what's going to happen with David Kahn, who's the leader of the liberal party? Well, the liberals have elected MLAs for the past 30 years, but their one MLA incumbent, David Swan is, is retiring. Mm-hmm. And David, David Kahn, who's running to replace him in Calgary Mountain View is not an MLA. So do they invite the liberals? So there, there's going to be some, some tough questions. Do they, do they, do they uh, allow Derek Filderbrand to join if Derek's Freedom Conservative Party is only running candidates in 30 ridings. Is, you know, like, is Here's it- what I think they should do for what it's worth, is if you've got an MLA in the House, your leader, whether or not that person is in the House, should be allowed to come to the TV debate. Hmm. And that's just always been my view and hmm. continues to be. Uh, whether or not that'll happen is a whole different kettle of fish. Uh, I would say in answer to the question, I think there will be at least one debate Mm-hmm. But but what I would say also that both Premier Notley uh, and Mr. Kenny are skilled parliamentarians. Uh, they are in possession of their minds. Uh, they know what they're doing. Uh, there will be no blunders like Mathis Hart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, agreed. Natalie, what do you think? Well, I don't disagree with anything that's been said so far, but one ask or hope that I have for these debates is that it becomes more than just a regurgitation of talking points one mm-hmm. after another. I'm really sick of these debates where it's just one leader skews their, spews their talking point, then the other leader doesn't even address what that leader said and talks about their talking point. And it's just so exhausting to listen to. And mm-hmm. I mean, with the exception of the math is hard comment with the last debate, like I didn't think there was anything of vague value or entertainment in that debate. And so I really want there to be a, a better quality discussion, but that might be asking for too much. I think it's not, given the way politics have gone, I think that really televised debates since Nixon and Kennedy uh, have basically followed the same format more and more mm-hmm. tightly, that people stick to to uh, 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 talking points, as you say, and they try for a kill shot. And once and once in a while you get, yeah. Senator, I knew JFK, and you're no JFK, mm-hmm. and everybody prays for those moments to come. <laughs> Mouth is hard was one of them, right? But, but, but it's risky, though, right? Because, yeah. you know, you, 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 I mean, it's, it's easy to play safe. But when you're trying to trying to to uh, you know to to uh, to implement the uh, what do they call it the punch the knockout punch like you know the moment the moment Brian Mulroney you, you had, had a choice, choice. Mr. Mm-hmm. yeah I mean you, sometimes that doesn't play it I remember I think it was the 2006 would have been 2006 federal leaders debate when Paul Martin clumsily delivered and pulled out the notwithstanding clause reply when something was basically I don't, I don't even I don't even remember what the context was but but he basically his challenge to Stephen Harper was that 
that he would, I think Paul Martin would get rid of the notwithstanding clause or something, and it totally fell flat. And yeah. there was no, there was no real context in terms of the debate. I remember sitting in in Rat at at the bar at the top of the Students Union building, uh, watching the debate with a bunch of poli sci friends, and we were all you know drinking beer and watching the debate. And all of a sudden, Paul Martin pulls this, and you could tell he'd like rehearsed it in front of the mirror <laughs> a couple of times because he delivered this this what he expected to be a knockout punch, and it was totally to totally fell flat and it was quite embarrassing and it was really bad and it was just like what like we were we were all sitting there thinking what the heck like what like did he actually just bring that up like number one most people don't even know what the notwithstanding clause means yeah or is unless um, you're watching the federal conservative leaders debate where it comes up every well there you go speakers there you go <laughs> if you're like my friends you make a drinking party game which is every time you hear notwithstanding clause take a shot like oh, it's gonna happen quite sheet. on it <laughs> that sounds excruciating <laughs> so so maybe we'll uh, in advance of the uh, of the leaders debate um, uh, which i also do believe there believe there will be one going into the provincial election maybe uh, we at uh, at the dayberta podcast will create a, a bingo uh, a leaders debate bingo sheet we should so send us in your uh, your points and your uh, uh, what you think we should include on the sheet, and uh, and we'll uh, we'll do one up for the for the election. I will say this: uh, as long as the media companies as they exist today are are the ones figuring this out, our debates are going to be super fucking boring all the time. And Don't use that word. Which super <laughs> <They're> boring? <laughs> they'll, they'll be boring all the time. And uh, honestly, like if 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 someone like Dave Cornway with his clout could wield his influence and do like a Facebook live debate, I think it'd be a lot more interesting. Okay, our last question is from Jason Wang. Jason asks, carbon levy funds only innovate existing sectors. Why is no one talking about Alberta's future economic resiliency, uh, resilience rather, to the price of oil beyond oil and gas? That's a that's a big question. Well, I thought seriously about that, but I would say I, I want to redefine that a little bit to beyond energy, mm-hmm. right? Because where that where that money is going tends to be into energy projects, right? And uh, and I think that that's because the government is, to some degree, picking winners and losers, or picking winners, and which is a proper role of government in my view. But but that they are. Uh, they're trying to deal with where we have strengths and where we can. It's not fair to ask the government to say, well, uh, let's pull it completely. Uh, let's put, why don't we start an entertainment industry here? Or why, or why don't we, you know, those, those dreams from the past, well, we can become a high-tech center just like California. No, we can't because it's too damn cold. <laughs> and I almost said a bad word myself. That's just too darn cold. Uh, or or, uh, or or the or the kind of ideas that well, you know, tourists will come here if we just paint murals on the sides of all the buildings. Not going to happen. So you need to play to your strengths in these matters, and I think the government is doing that. And I think any government would, regardless of party. What do you think, Natalie? Yeah, I, I don't disagree with anything David said there. And I, I took this question to be more about um, energy in general, uh, and. I mean, R&D is expensive. Mm-hmm. You're not going to direct money into a brand new area where that's not established and developed. I think that's irresponsible for a government to direct funds into maybe a gamble or a guess. And so when you've got an oil and gas uh, sector that's that's pretty you know, established, pretty efficient for the most part, and, and it's a reliable source of energy right now for this province, I don't think it's very responsible to send taxpayer dollars off into exploring another type of alternative energy. 
Dave, uh, Alberta's own space program. Do you think the carbon tax could fund it? I, I think it's where we need to go. <laughs> I think uh, to, 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 to plant the Alberta flag on Mars by 2050 is, uh, is, is a dream worth voting for in you know 2019. D- Dave's actually got a better idea here than, uh, than, uh, than I, we might give him credit for. <laughs> There's somewhere on this planet, there needs to be a site for the space elevator that is going to be built. I think Fort McMurray makes sense. And so Fort McMurray would be a great place. You're going to have to have this conversation with Ryan now. He's going to be so disappointed that we talked about space when he's not here. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll have to pick this up in a future episode. Exactly. Well, that, that's it for the questions we have today. Thank you to everyone who submitted a question. And that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. Thanks to our producer, Adam Rosenhart, for helping us put the show together. And a huge thanks to the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB, for supporting the show. Send us your feedback or ask us any questions you have for our next episode. You can get us on Twitter at at Dave Berta or on the Dave Berta Facebook page, or you can email us at podcast at DaveBerta.ca. And a huge thanks today to our special guests, David Kleimenhaga and Natalie Pond. Thanks for listening. It's been a delight. Thanks very much. Do, 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 do.